So over about the last, I think it's six weeks, I've been talking about the seven factors of enlightenment. And last week I uh, spoke about the seventh factor, equanimity. And you probably all thought I was done. (laughs) But alas, this is not the case. Um, I just find that, you know, in bringing in one aspect of the Buddhist teachings, there's other aspects that can be highlighted at... uh, and brought to light, which helps to give us a broader sp- perspective, uh, depth of understanding. And so tonight I wanted to uh, not so much speak about these seven factors as to kind of give more of a context to them, both as a, a base of what we can turn to to help to develop these seven factors and also just to speak some about the obstacles that we run into as we develop these seven factors. So there's a few of you who are new this week, and just to refresh the memory of all those who have already been sitting. Actually, I think if, um, if I was like Chong Yei Seira right now, I would get those who have been here to recite out loud what all the seven factors are. But since I always hated doing that myself, um, I will say it for you. (laughs) Um, So we began with mindfulness, really just learning to pay attention, turn our attention to whatever arises in this body and this mind, really being able to be present with whatever is happening. And then we move into investigation, where we allow this illuminating quality to help us to discern what these experiences are. You know, it's just not a blob of experiences, but each experience has specific qualities. It also has, each experience has universal characteristics. And so investigation helps us to really come to know intimately the qualities of our experience. Then we find effort or energy. This is the effort or energy that's required to keep turning our attention to the experiences of body and mind. And with effort or energy, finding just the amount of effort or energy that will help us to meet the experience. Um, So a really balanced effort or energy. As we really apply ourselves through mindfulness, investigation, effort, we find that there comes a raptness of mind, a joyful interest in the seeing or knowing of truth, that this leads to a real lightness and agility in the mind and body. As this becomes more pervasive, we find a deep contentment arising, a contentment that leads us into calm, tranquility, where the mind is released from restlessness and agitation, a deeply restful state. This helps to support the development of concentration. 
concentration where um, it allows us to exclude distraction, to really allow the mind to settle and become unified with all aspects of our experience. And this, in turn, supports equanimity. Equanimity being the non-reactivity of mind. The mind that is so spacious, so balanced, that it can hold both the greatest joys in life and the deepest suffering without moving into reaction. So these being the seven factors of enlightenment. And the, the Buddha talking about how uh, the development of these seven factors is slanting the mind towards nibbana, towards enlightenment, towards awakened, the awakened state. So trying to give a little bit more context to these seven factors. I'd like to share a uh, quote from the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, And the the name of the sutta is called The Mountain. And so this is from the, the Buddha. Bhikkhus, based upon the Himalayas, the king of the mountains, the Nagas, nurture their bodies and acquire strength. When they have nurtured their bodies and acquired strength, then they enter into the pools. From the pools they entered the lakes, then the streams, then the rivers, and finally they enter the ocean. There they achieve greatness and expansiveness of body. So too, bhikkhus, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, and thereby they achieve greatness and expansiveness in wholesome states. So the Buddha saying that these seven factors of enlightenment need to be based upon virtue. Virtue is going to be the foundation or the mountain upon which we can really develop these seven factors of mind, these seven wholesome factors that will lead us into a greatness and expansiveness. So I'd like to speak just a little bit about virtue. And we're probably all aware that virtue uh, can be translated as sila, ethical conduct, moral conduct. It's where we have an intention to live in the way of non-harming. Where we live our lives with a deep respect for ourselves and others. This can really be the beginning place of the realization of anatta. Because when we live with this deep respect and care, it helps us to step out of a self-referencing framework of life. The framework of living where everything's relating back to what I want, what I need, um, 
where we are the center of the universe. When we live a virtuous life, and we can you know, either use the basis of this virtuous life as living by the five precepts or the eight precepts, where we're living uh, with these guidelines that the Buddha gave us for living this life of non-harming. It helps us to step into a more inclusive way of living, a way of living where we know that our actions have consequences, and so we take care. You know, and karma is really um, the understanding of karma will help us support to be supported in the strengthening of virtue. To know that actions have consequences, words have consequences. What we do, what we say, what we think, this all has consequences. And so that will help us to explore anatta in this way of the effect of our actions, the effect of our words and having a broadening sense of how this is all interrelated. Virtue really helps us to live in a way that is respectful of others, in harmony with others, It allows us to live really upright and without fear. It allows us to be trustworthy, where people can have confidence in us. It enables us to live in a way that we can deepen our own Dharma understanding. And it also helps us uh, to live in a way that we're not constantly threatening the faith and the confidence that others have in the Dhamma. You know, we really become trustworthy. We become pillars of the Dhamma. There's said to be two guardians of the universe that really aid us in the Um, strengthening of virtue. These are the guardians of of hiri and otapa, moral shame and moral fear. If there wasn't these two guardians of moral shame and moral fear, the universe would be in a much bigger mess than what it is right now. These are very two wholesome qualities in the mind that protect us from doing things that we will later regret or that will have harmful consequences. Moral shame is being able to distinguish when our actions, our speech, are going to have heavy consequences that we are going to feel really bad about. That if we were to do this, we would feel shame about. But when we have moral shame, it protects us. It's like a, a warning, a signal. Don't go there. Don't do this. And it's really born out of self-respect. 
moral fear is a voice of wisdom that doesn't want to do something that will have cause for others to blame us, that we'll have, uh, we, we become aware of this law of karma and that we don't want to be planting unwholesome seeds. And it's born out of respect for others. These two guardians of the universe will help us strengthen our sila. And we can watch for them by paying attention to that which feels like it's going to bring about a contraction in the heart. Um, you know, where we, we just ugh, feel bad. And watching for, you know, that voice of wisdom that says, don't do this. It has harmful consequences. So we just watch for these voices. These, and they're really wholesome factors. And you know, often we think of shame and fear as being unwholesome mind states. And you know, many times they are. But in this case, they are actually voices of wisdom. So they're quite different. <clears throat> So tonight we chanted the precepts. This is really helpful, and you know, not to be using it as a time of mechanical chanting, but as a time of calling to mind these virtues of heart and mind. You know that these are ways that we protect our minds so that we can strengthen the seven factors. We can slant the mind towards Nibbana. And it's helpful to bring them to mind over and over again. In that way, we really learn to embody. We really learn to have these as uh, pillars that we can fall back upon when we need to make decisions in our life, when we are speaking or acting in uh, our lives. In the practice that we do here, we really begin to understand how important virtue or sila is because when we have acted in unwholesome ways, we have done unskillful things, we feel bad about it. It comes back to us as we sit. But also as we sit, we have moments where we experience the purity of heart in the midst of a long retreat when we've had you know long periods of time where we've not been doing unskillful things we really begin to have a strong sense of how those unskillful actions have affected us have disturbed us have agitated us have created suffering in this mind stream So the Buddha talked about this uh, quality of virtue as being the foundation, the base, the mountain from which we can move into these seven factors. 
But it isn't like that we have to perfect uh, our virtue before we can begin to practice. Because practice will actually help us to see that which is unwholesome. We'll see it from a place of wisdom rather than an ideal in the mind. But it will certainly support our practice. So we find virtue as the base. And then we begin practicing. We begin cultivating these seven factors. But then we also discover that it's not so easy, even if we have a strong uh, foundation of virtue. As we begin the practice, we will discover obstacles in the journey. We will run into the five hindrances. I'd like to speak a little bit more about these five hindrances because the Buddha really linked the five hindrances with the seven factors of enlightenment. He often talked about how um, with the five hindrances, we need to cease to nourish these hindrances through wise attention. And if you remember back to my speaking about the the seven factors, there was always uh, the way to cultivate these seven factors, the first being that of wise attention. So immediately when a hindrance arises, and if we cease to nourish that hindrance, we move into wise attention which will then move us into the place of strengthening the seven factors of enlightenment. These five hindrances, I'm sure you've all heard something of them. So this will not be an in-depth talk about them, but just helping us to remember, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) that these are common experiences as we practice, Um, five hindrances being that of desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And, you know, these hindrances can be multiple at the beginning of a period of practice. And they also arise in just one moment where we don't have wise attention, where we are inattentive to our experience. You know, it can just take one little thought that we don't notice. A thought like, I'm tired. And... Out of that, there can be many moments of painful experience. We suddenly find that we've gone from being really mindful, aware, alert, and slid right into sleepiness, or a lack of attention, a heaviness, a dullness in the mind. And it was just from missing one mind moment The Buddha uh, likened these hindrances to the mind 
that weakens wisdom, comparable to corruptions of gold, or he likened it to parasitic trees in a forest, or impurities in the water that obscure the reflections of one's own face. He also called them makers of blindness, encirclers of the mind. They keep us caught, trapped. And he said that they were destructive to wisdom and distractions from the path to Nibbana. Just in listening to those descriptions from the Buddha, it can highlight how important it is to pay attention to these states of mind that we commonly encounter in practice. And, you know, I know from my own experience, I know from having listened to many, many hindrance talks, there can be times when they come in in a new way. A new garden variety appears. And, you know, they just have this way of really slipping in under the radar screen. You know, they're, they're so, in fact, so familiar at times that we fail to recognize them. And so they start to become the lens through which we're viewing our experience. The scene of this was quite dramatic for me at one point in my own practice. It was at a time when I was in Burma doing a long retreat, and I'd been sitting for uh, quite a period of time. And you know, for a while the practice had been going quite well. And then suddenly it was really difficult. It was quite challenging. And at that time, I remembered some of my friends who had gone to India, and they'd sat with this teacher, and it said that, you know, almost just in laughing with this teacher, that they had got it. And, you know, at that time, um, you know, I just thought of these people and the ease of which they got it, and I didn't even know what got it meant, but I just realized they had it, I didn't, and I wanted it. And I was really caught in a state of distress. And my practice was just going in this downward spiral. And this went on for a period of time. And then, you know, one day I just sat down and I said, okay, what's my problem? What's happening here? And so I looked into my own experience. And what did I see? Desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. And when I saw that, it was just like, oh, it's just the hindrances. You know, it didn't mean I was really a bad person. It didn't mean that I was going to be condemned to a life of suffering. It didn't mean that I was going to be in deep therapy for the rest of my life. It was just the hindrances. And this really helped to depersonalize it to just be able to see these passing states of mind. To, and, you know, and when we begin to work with them, we really start to see the cause and conditions that give rise to the arising of these hindrances. And we begin to experience really clearly for ourselves wise attention, what the effect of that does, how it diminishes them, how it takes the power, the intensity out of these mind states. And we can see them just for what they are. 
impermanent states that arise in the mind due to certain conditions. As we cease to feed these states of mind, these states of mind diminish and disappear, are impermanent in their very nature, and they are not who we truly are. So the first hindrance, that of desire, the wanting mind, craving, clinging, attachment, this arising through attachment to experience through any of the sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, beautiful states of mind. This is something that creeps in strongly in our practice. You know, if we've been sitting for a long time, it might be that we've worked with uh, desire, you know, and we don't experience it so strongly through wanting of uh, beautiful sense objects in, in the grosser sense. But it becomes more refined in our practice, where we're leaning into our practice, that just wanting to get something Uh, wanting stronger concentration, wanting a beautiful mind state. We become really fueled by this enchantment of desire. You know, and it really can be, sometimes we might not even know what we are wanting, but the wanting is just there. And it's this sense that something else is needed in order to feel whole, in order to feel unified. And so, you know, sometimes it's a really subtle wanting, enchantment. There's some promise of happiness that is an experience other than what is happening right now. So it can have the sense of that, that leaning forward into experience. It can also have the, the aspect of trying to hold on to when we do hit the pleasant states, when things are beautiful. You know? And so it's really wanting to uh, make permanent that which is pleasant. And so then it's really helpful to note this quality of pleasantness to really be with, open to, the pleasantness so that we can see that it is impermanent. If we really stay with our experience in the form of wanting, of being, you know, kind of leaning into our experience, if we really stay with that, then we become to see, uh, we come to see that even if we get what we want, that it's very likely the wanting will arise again. So we begin to see the impermanence in that way, or by staying with pleasant experience, to seeing how it changes. You know, pleasant is not a constant.
So bringing wise attention to desire, attachment, clinging, this this enchantment that we often fall into. Having to say also, not to be afraid of seeing desire. If we're afraid of attachment, we will be continually distancing ourselves from pleasant experience, which is also not going to be helpful. So, just needing to have an honesty and uprightness and a true connection with pleasant experience so that it doesn't move into this attachment. And when the attachment arises, to be able to note that attachment. It's really important that we don't hold the hindrances in a moralistic way, that um, that they are bad or wrong. They are just places where we need to bring wise attention. So the, the first hindrance, desire, attachment, aversion. The second hindrance being that of aversion, hatred, anger, and ill will. This hindrance is at times very painful, really a place of strong suffering. You know, a time when, you know, if we're sitting in the silence of this hall and we experience anger, it's just like it pierces the silence. You know, I know sometimes on retreat, if I experience anger, I'm sure everybody around me is affected by it. It can feel so strong. No, it's just, it feels like it's emanating from us. And it doesn't feel pleasant. It's really unpleasant. It's, you know, when we experience anger, we really, uh, you know, at times want to lash out at our experience. There's something that's really unbearable. And it can be a frustration, a rage, a wanting to be able to control our experience. It's where we really lose perspective. And you know what? It can happen in just a split second when strong anger arises. That suddenly our whole equanimous perspective is gone. And we're just hooked into the anger. And even though it's really a state of suffering, it can be very seductive, very enchant- It has its own enchantment, you know, where we can feel really self-righteous, really justified. You know, there can be a very strong sense of I in the anger. And just that is such a great place to see the pain of I, me, and mine because it is so separate. It is so isolated. 
it is so filled with dukkha. Anger really helps us to see where we are still caught, what we're still identified with, what we're clinging to. And it also will take a strong commitment to work with it, to bring in this quality of wise attention, to be mindful of it, because it might take us into deeper dukkha, into needing to be able to open to underlying states that are feeding it, fear, disappointment, whatever it might be that's fueling it. And yet, many of us have seen in our practice, in a moment of being mindful of anger, where we aren't fueling it, we aren't fanning that fire of I, me, and mine. We aren't moving into that protective relationship that creates separation. It simply diminishes. Or it might simply cease to be. Or as it takes us into an understanding of the states that are fueling it, there becomes a release, a softening. Actually, if we pay strong attention to the state of anger, we can really come to learn of this way that the mind cools as it releases, as we no longer identify with this state. As we pay attention to anger, we can begin to see that many times it's simply there's an unpleasant experience that we don't want to experience. And so there's the aversion, the pulling away. And you know, sometimes it's really subtle. It's not always the full-blown lashing out, but just that distance. We don't want to touch it. And that's there, too, if we can just be steady with the mindfulness, if we can really know just an unpleasant experience, it doesn't move into this cycle of anger, retracting, recoiling from experience. The third hindrance is that of sloth and torpor. It's going to be sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, laziness, apathy, a lack of energy, a lack of resolve, We find that when we're feeling sleepy, we don't have the energy to be with that which is painful. We don't have the energy to hold that which is difficult. I always found it interesting uh, many times at the end of a day of practice to notice when sleepiness was there, And then just the getting up, how quickly 
I started to walk to my room. You know, there just wasn't that energy to walk mindfully, to be with the experience moment by moment. It became so much harder. There's many causes to sleepiness, to sloth and torpor. Some of it just comes from a basic weariness from having a body and mind. But often there's other causes that it can be helpful to look into because um, we may actually be fueling this sleepiness, this sloth and torpor. It can come about when there is this resistance to unpleasant experiences of body and mind. And rather than experiencing the unpleasantness, we numb out. We, you know, it, it, the, the sleepiness acts as a natural anesthetic. It, uh, it keeps us from really touching that which is unpleasant. And so, in order to work with that dulling, that numbing out that happens, we need to uh, bring in the quality of investigation to see what is underpinning this sleepiness, this tiredness. Sleepiness can also happen when we've been trying too hard. Our effort is out of balance. We've been, you know, maybe uh, fiercely hanging on to each breath. But it's not sustainable. And so there comes a sleepiness. So if sleepiness is present, just checking how you are meeting experience. Is there a tightening as you connect with experience? When sleepiness is present in the mind, um, it's the time that we should be working with the energy, energizing factors of enlightenment. Um, We want to arouse some energy. And this, I, I love this description that the Buddha once gave. He said, bhikkhus, suppose a man wanted to make a small fire burn up and he put wet grass on it, put wet cow dung on it, put wet sticks on it, would that person be able to make the small fire burn? No, venerable sir, the monks responded. And so too, bhikkhus, when the mind is slack, that is not the time to develop the tranquility enlightenment factor, or the concentration factor, or the equanimity factor. Why is that? Because a slack mind cannot well be roused by those states. When the mind is slack, that is the time to develop the investigation of states of enlightenment factor, the energy factor, and the rapture factor. You know, so an example of this is when we notice that there's a lot of sleepiness, if we just fall into the rhythm of the breath, which can really help to develop a strong concentration, um, we'll just fall asleep. What we need to be strengthening at that time is really the quality of investigation. 
What's being known? How is that breath being experienced in that moment? Bringing in a precise attention to experience. And really, you know, calling forth energy, effort to meet our experience. We need to arouse the mind. It's really um, with this, this hindrance of sloth and torpor and the next hindrance of restlessness where we begin to see uh, where the Buddha in the Seven Factors of Enlightenment talked about the energizing factors and the tranquilizing or stabilizing factors. And when they get out of balance, that's when we're going to see um, the arising of sloth and torpor or the arising of restlessness, which is the next hindrance. And, you know, restlessness being where the mind is agitated, anxious, or worrisome, where there's a jumpiness in the mind. The mind can't rest upon any object. We find that the mind might wander endlessly, replaying old tapes of the past, or obsessively planning the future. Sometimes the restlessness is experienced in the body, where there's just a great agitation, a lot of physical sensations, a jumpiness, and sometimes it's in the mind, where there are all of these old tapes. Um, Worry is a form of restlessness. Guilt is a form of restlessness. So when we look at it from the perspective of these seven factors, when restlessness becomes strong, that's when we want to work with the, the strengthening of calmness, concentration, and equanimity, the stabilizing factors. So with restlessness, you know, strengthening concentration. Um, I think I mentioned that a few weeks ago in the way of, you know, we can either make just a steady determination to be with the breath, And no matter how much the mind jumps away, we simply come back. We keep coming back to a one-pointed focus with our meditation. Or we can use the physical sensations of restlessness to focus upon, and that will quickly concentrate the mind. The last hindrance being that of doubt. Skeptical doubt, where we distance our ourselves from the experience of these seven factors by getting caught up in um, the you know thoughts that point to I'm no good. I can't do this practice. This practice isn't for me. The teachers are no good, or you know really. Um, not letting ourselves come close to experience because we're not trusting. We don't have faith. There's not confidence. Sometimes doubt is a way of trying to keep ourselves feeling more secure. That 
we know a better way. They can um, be a way that we really invest our ego in our beliefs. And we really, when we start to notice doubt creeping in, have to pay diligent attention. Because doubt will really stop our practice. It will have a crippling effect. It will keep us from moving into the unknown. And so, you know, with doubt, we really need to come close to experience. And when we're close to experience, there's no room for doubt to creep in. So if when we hear the voice of doubt in our mind, we use it as a mindfulness bell, it can, instead of distancing us, be turned into taking us into a deeper inquiry, a deeper connection with experience, where we move closer to what is actually happening in any moment, rather than what we think is happening. We want to drop into the actuality of experience. So we work with all of these hindrances through learning to bring wise attention to them. When we can do this, we will find the seven factors of enlightenment strengthening. They will become uh, much stronger in our experience. All of these beautiful qualities of heart and mind um, that you know we we will find mindfulness strong, investigation, this illumination in the mind. Our effort can become quite effortless and we will experience states of rapture where there's really strong bliss. We will experience calmness, uh, a great tranquility um, in the mind, and strong concentration and unification of the mind, and a real balance when these hindrances are at bay. And when we really find this becoming strong in our experience, it gets quite amazing. It's very beautiful. And this, again, can uh, lead to what is called, what is another set of obstacles, what is called the corruptions of insight, or the upakalesa, where we develop an attachment to all of these wholesome states of mind. And, you know, it happens that even though we are cautioned about becoming attached to these states of mind, these factors in the mind, that it's really, really difficult not to become attached to them. Because they can be the best experience of our life. I remember back to 
you know, my, a period in my own practice when the seven factors of enlightenment were becoming stronger. And <laughs> it's amazing. You know, it's really something. And so when that happens, one can start to think that one is enlightened, that this is it. Um, It's beyond anything that we ever knew before. You know, we keep... I remember, you know, at this time, it was a feeling like door after door opened in the mind. But what happened was attachment creeps in, where there, you know, the attachment can come in a few different ways. Um, It can happen that we just really love these states. And first of all, I think I'm going to just describe a few of the things that we get attached to that are quite common in our practice. And where if we don't pay careful attention, we will actually do what's called stopping within. That we will cease to continue on because we think we've realized the end of suffering. And really we've just become attached to some aspect of these experiences. So one aspect is where as concentration strengthens, light begins to appear. And for each of us, that might appear differently. It can appear like a bright light, like the light of a lamp. It can be a colored light. It can be more of a radiance, a radiance that the sun or the moon gives off. Sometimes we can be sitting in a dark room, and it can seem like the whole room is illuminated. Some religious traditions actually refer to the divine light. And so, you know, when light becomes very predominant, very pervasive, one can think, ah, this is it. This is the divine light. We also find in our experience that as perception strengthens, and we really start to see the arising and passing away of phenomena. It becomes very clear in our experience. And we start to see anicca, dukkha, anatta in moment-by-moment experience. That again, we think, oh, this is what people have been talking about. And we, we again start to think, I've got it. And we take our foot off the pedal. We, we are not realizing that just the seeing of this, too, is impermanent. It can be that we get attached to the rapture that comes forth. You know, the, the rapture that can begin with you know, thrills and chills in the body, goose flesh, that can at times move into a really pervasive rapture that can keep the mind light, agile, and can happen for hours on end, where this is just this pervasive rapture of body and mind. Or that we get attached to the tranquility, calmness, stillness. 
where we notice that you know the mind is not agitated, restless, and that we think that this must be the deep peace and contentment of liberation. And we have a happiness of mind that we think that this will last forever. And at these times, our faith can become so strong that we, we can sit and we think, our faith is so strong that we just want to share our experience with everyone. We start you know, fantasizing about how we can share this freedom that we found. Um, we start planning the meditation center that we're going to open. We start planning the first Dharma talk that we will give. Um, we just get overzealous in this faith and confidence. We can get attached to experience being seen with great clarity. Or we can get attached to the equanimity that arises, this non-reactivity in the mind. So these seven factors become um, the corruptions of insight when we start to identify with them as the way, in the way of I, me, or mine. When we aren't seeing that these are uh, conditions that are simply arising and passing away again, but that we start to relate to this state as being permanent. We need to understand that these are conditioned states that are arising and that they are not the experience of the mind released from clinging through right understanding. When any of these um, seven factors of enlightenment are arising, and when we start experiencing kind of like the goodies of good practice, we need to stay really diligent in the noting of these experiences. And when we can do this, when we can simply you know, experience profound contentment, profound ease, profound tranquility, when we can simply note it in the same way that we note our knee pain, that we note strong, difficult emotions, that we just see it, we note it, we know it, and that's just our experience, then we will be able to move on in our practice. We will not experience these seven factors as an hindrance or an obstacle to our practice. And there doesn't seem to be a way around this other than getting, um, experiencing these states 
watching them diminish and feeling the pain of that. You know, and when we feel the pain of that, then we realize that we simply need to keep on going. We just need to note them. We just need to be present in these experiences. The learning about these corruptions of insight in our own experience, the visceral experience of being attached to these states and the letting go, the relinquishment, is really an important piece along the path because it will uh, help to really deepen our equanimity. It will allow us to be able to open to even deeper depths of suffering. Because we're no longer tantalized by the wanting of these beautiful states. You know, so often our practice is just set up upon really wanting to experience these beautiful states and wanting to make them permanent. But remembering that the liberation that the Buddha talked about is not simply beautiful states of mind. It's through right understanding, the elimination of wrong view, the uprooting in our minds of that which creates suffering through right understanding. Remembering that these seven factors of enlightenment are what slants the mind towards nibbana or awakening. For some of us, they are a helpful framework to work in. For others of us, they may bring up distress or the striving for perfection. to see, to remember that we're only speaking about them as a means of pointing to a wise relationship with our experience that is going to uncover the depths of wisdom and compassion that are present in the mind that is free of delusion. We're just looking at a skillful means of being with our experience where we don't compound our suffering, but learn to illuminate the natural wisdom and compassion of the mind that sees clearly. So if in some way these seven factors have got you entangled in a knot, entangled in striving for perfection, to see if you can't rest and let your practice be fueled by your love of the Dhamma, 
your love of truth and just letting each moment, each experience that arises and passes away be held or nourished by this love of truth, love of the Dhamma. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings fully develop the seven factors of enlightenment and realize the end of suffering. of sharing and aspiration. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.